I love the story of Nehemiah because God uses somebody who's not a prophet, he's not a, a priest, he's not some religious leader, he's just a common, ordinary man with an extraordinary God that does extraordinary things through him. The fact that he has a, a willing spirit, and over and over again we hear in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah gives, gives the glory to God. And oftentimes he talks about how, uh, according to the great hand of his God upon him, and uh, it's amazing to watch that throughout the book of Nehemiah. They rebuilt the walls in record time, and God prospered them, even though they had a lot of um, opposition. They had a lot of criticism. They had a lot of people trying to stop the work. And in chapters 1 through 7, we saw that. In chapter number 8, we see a spiritual revival beginning as Ezra gets up and he reads the book of the law. And uh, they begin to, to weep, and Ezra tells them, don't, don't weep. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And uh, rejoice that God is doing something in your hearts. And I think that there, when, when there are times of personal revival and personal stirring, I believe that there are both emotions, that there is a joy that God is doing something in our hearts, and that there is also great sorrow as we see how much we have failed Him. And so in chapter number 8, we find them rejoicing, we find them celebrating, we find them having a feast, and then as we get to chapter number 9, it's time to deal with their sin. And so we uh, have one of what I believe to be one of the great, great prayers of confession in Scripture. Probably, probably in my mind, one of the greatest of them. And... Uh, as they begin to weep. And now the sorrow, the, the remorse, the brokenness over their sins and the sins of their fathers. <clears throat> we get to chapter number 10, and after any time of confession, after any time of God getting our hearts right with the Lord, um, that's only the first step. The, the next step is then we need to make some commitments to God and we need to put some things in place that will keep us from getting back to that place where we were. Uh, that will keep us from backsliding. And so in chapter number 10, we see uh, an application of the truth that they've read about. They've heard the word of the law of uh, God, and uh, they've had it read to them. And so now in chapter number 10, they begin to make a commitment. In fact, they renew what the Bible refers to here as a covenant. There's a new covenant being made, or not a new one, but a reiteration of the old covenant, where God made it with His people. And He back in um, Deuteronomy chapter, I think it's 20. 226, somewhere in there, uh, you'll find an interesting thing because you'll find an entire chapter, and I wish I'd have brought the reference with me, but you'll find an entire chapter where God begins to say, uh, here's the, the, uh, the uh, parameters of the covenant, and He said, if you break these, cursed, 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 and there's like 12 or 14 verses that says, cursed is the man, cursed is the man, and He talks about uh, all these curses. And then he goes on, he says, but if you'll keep them, then he goes through another chapter, he says, blessed, 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 blessed. And the idea being that as long as you keep covenant, that you'll have God's blessing. If you don't keep covenant, then you'll have God's cursing. Now, this was under the law, and we certainly understand that. This is in the Old Testament times. I'm thankful that we lived under grace now. And uh, the truth is that there was a new covenant made at Calvary. In fact, the Bible talks about in uh, Galatians about the fact that there was a new covenant. The old one had to be done away with because it was imperfect. It was based upon the sacrifices of goats and calves and lambs. But we read from the book of Hebrews that a new covenant was made, one that was perfect, one that uh, took the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and once and for all was slain for mankind, and uh, that this new covenant was made at Calvary. And uh, this is a covenant where the Bible tells us, according to the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is the surety of that covenant. I don't, have to, I don't have to be the one to bear the cost of breaking covenant with God. I'm thankful 
that when God came up with a plan for us to get to heaven, He knew that man, because of our sinful condition, could not, could not, we were unable to keep covenant with God. God could always keep covenant, but man could never. How could an uh, evil, wicked, unholy man come into the presence of absolute holiness and, and think that he could keep covenant? And so Jesus was the surety. He was the guarantor of that covenant. And now when, when Satan tries to be the accuser and he comes to the Father and tells him of all the things that we've done to break the covenant, Jesus says, it's already paid for. That's on my account. I'm thankful that we have a God like that. I'm thankful we have a Savior like that. I'll tell you, when you start understanding and learning that truth, uh, this idea of eternal security, it, it's not even a question anymore. We know it. When I go to bed at night, I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. And so we get to chapter number 9. We find this renewal of a covenant. And in the process of making a covenant, they would take a sacrifice, and the two parties would stand on either side as they would cut the sacrifice in half. They'd lay the carcass uh, in two halves, and they would let the blood pool in the middle. They would begin to walk each the opposite direction. They'd stand in the middle of this cut carcass. And while they were there, there were several things that would take place. They would, uh, they would cut the palms or the wrists, and they would intermingle the blood. And the idea of this was that they were no longer one individual, but they were now a single entity in agreement on this issue. And while they were standing there, the, they would give the blessings of the covenant. In other words, here's what you gain by entering into this agreement. And then they would also list the cursings of the covenant. And these were the things that would be the cost of breaking covenant. And once that was done, they would ex- there were so many other things. They would exchange names. <laughs> I love that. I'm thankful that the Bible says that there's a new name written for me up in glory. And uh, when I became saved... I took on the name of Christian. I now have the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, then they would exchange uh, their uh, coats and their cloaks and the idea meaning that everything that I own, everything that belongs to me now belongs to that person and the same with them uh, back to me. They would exchange those gifts. They would exchange weapons belts indicating that they would come to the defense of the other person as if it was their own body. And uh, they would fight to the point of death so much so that when Sir Henry Stanley went into the heart of Africa to find Dr. David Livingston, uh, when he came to the first cannibalistic tribe, uh, Henry Stanley met with the chief and he cut the covenant with them. They understood, believe it or not, even these pagan tribes still remembered the Old Testament practice of covenant. They knew that that covenant was not to be broken. And so they cut, he cut the covenant on his arm. He had a cut there from the, uh, the first tribe that they ever met. As he went into the next tribe, all he had to do was roll his sleeve up and hold his arm in the air, and that tribe knew not to touch him, because if they did, the entire tribe back here would fight every one of them to the death to revenge or to avenge his death if anything happened to him. So he went into that tribe, and he cut the covenant with that chief. Historians tell us that by the time he reached Dr. David Livingston, he had cut the covenant over 50 times with 50 different tribes in Africa. There wasn't a person in Africa that would touch him walking in. Why? Because he had the backing. He had somebody coming behind saying, we stand for this fella. We're going to defend this fella. And uh, I'm thankful for Old Testament covenant. I love that. We still practice a lot of that today. Uh, we uh, greet each other with the right handshake. And while we don't cut anymore uh, and mingle the blood, that's a, that's a leftover from Old Testament covenant. We make an agreement with somebody, we shake hands on it. And used to they'd cut and they'd make the covenant on that. 
so many things about our wedding ceremonies are left over. We wonder, well, how did that become? Was that just tradition? Was that just something that happened? No, that was Old Testament covenant practice. And so as we get into uh, this chapter 10, it's, it's helpful to understand what's taking place here because we're going to come across a portion of Scripture here as we get to the middle of chapter 10. It begins the first several verses down through about verse number 14 or so with the leaders. We start with Nehemiah and those that were the governmental leaders. Down in the middle of there, you'll see that the Levites also come along. And these are the ones that are signing their name. They're putting their, their mark. They're saying, we are entering and reiterating. We are recommitting our side of the covenant to God. By the way, it would do us well as Christians to have periods of time in our life where we come back to God and we say, Lord, I just want to reinforce that decision I made for you so long ago to live for you, to have a life that is pleasing to you. And so we find as we get down through there, there's a large number of names, and I'm not even going to pretend to know how to pronounce them all. But we get down to verse 14. The Bible says the chief of the people uh, were these ones that were uh, writing and signing their names to this this uh, covenant that was being reiterated. And then we get down to verse number 28, and this is where we uh, ended last week. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and we spent a little bit of time talking about the Nethanims. And boy, wasn't that a blessing. The Nethanims were a group of people that were not Israelites. They were grafted in. These were folks that had been conquered or captured many times and uh, in battle. And God would tell them to keep a remnant of them to help serve with the Levites in the temple. And so while they were forcefully brought in, in, in some instances in this case, it's, it's so wonderful to see that God allowed them to be partakers of these things. And when it came time for people to sign their name and say, we're going to re, reinstate this covenant of keeping the law of God, the Nethanim stood their place in line and said, we want to be part of that too. We're, going to, we're also going to sign our names. We're not Israelites but we'll enter that covenant with you, that we're going to keep the law of God. I'm thankful that God grafted in the Gentiles, aren't you? I'll tell you what, what a joy. And uh, so we learned a little bit about that last Sunday, and that's where we left off. And all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse... And into an oath. This is how we understand that this was, again, a reiteration of the covenant here. We see the, the curses of it and the promises of it, or the oath of it. They entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His judgments and His statutes. Now, I want to just uh, make a couple of uh, comments here. And... Uh, then I want us to look at a particular phrase that I think is very interesting as we get to this. First of all, uh, we find that this um, keeping of God's covenant, the keeping of the law, the desire uh, to, to follow the truth that God had given them, which, by the way, ought to be every one of our desires, to follow the truth that God has given us, oftentimes we fail in how to do it. We don't know how to do it. Can I tell you this? It begins with leadership, certainly. That there ought to be leaders. And by the way, uh, you say, well, that means that the pastor ought to live a certain way. And, and I think so. I think, I think religious leaders, I think people that are in leadership positions certainly ought to live above reproach. But can I tell you this? That doesn't negate that, that, doesn't negate that you get to uh, get off the hook because the Bible says that we are a city that is set on a hill which cannot be hid. 
You don't have a choice. People are looking to you. If you name the name of Christ and you say, I'm a Christian, there is a world that is looking to you. And whether you want to be or not, whether you signed up for it or not, whether you said, yes, that's me, I want that, that, that opportunity, you are a leader among somebody. Somebody looks up to you. If you're a parent, your children look up to you. If you're a Christian, the lost world looks to you. They are, they're watching us. And so there's very, very important that when it comes to uh, recommitting ourselves to following the law of God, to following the truth of God's Word, that it begins in the area of leadership. That means personal character. We've got to say, I'm going to have a commitment in my heart to, to live the way that God wants me to, not because I'm trying to please Brother Jim back here, not because I'm trying to put on some kind of an outward performance that everybody can look at me and say, boy, what a great Christian he is. I do it because I love God with all of my heart, and I want to please Him. And it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. I'll be real frank with you. I, I love every one of you. But I don't care what you think of my life because my only goal is to please Him. It, I, I want to please the Lord. I, want to, I don't want to bring grief to Him. I don't want to cause Him sorrow. And so when I live my life and I put standards in place in my life, it's not because somebody told me I needed to have that standard. I'll be real frank with you, and you may get a little upset about this. It's not because I'm part of the independent Baptist group movement that I have those standards. It's because I love God and I want to please Him. There's a difference there. When man puts it upon us and begins to say, you've got to have this or else you're not a good Christian, that, that, that borderlines legalism. But when I do it because I'm motivated by loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, there's the motivation that every Christian ought to have for living a life that is holy and pleasing and keeping the law of God. And so these leaders come out and they say, we want to, we want to uh, follow them and we're going to live by them. And then the others, the porters, the singers, the nephonims, all of them begin to do this. And they begin, secondly, by separating themselves. Separating themselves. You know, the Bible tells us that we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Paul said we're to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. We certainly ought to be those that live above reproach. Why? Because we want to separate ourselves and it's interesting to me, but look at what the Bible says here as we get to verse number 28, after we see the Nephilims and all they that have separated themselves. Notice this phrase, and I think it's very, very important. From the people of the lands unto the law of God. Can I tell you, it's not enough to just separate from something. We need to separate unto something. Uh, I, I was teaching on, um, on uh, how, to, how to talk to a Mormon and how to share the gospel with a Mormon a number of months ago, we spent several weeks on it. And getting a Mormon to understand that their doctrine and what they believe is wrong is only half of the battle. Now you've created a vacuum. If you ever get them to that point where they understand that they're wrong, now you've created a vacuum because their entire life has been based on this is truth. And all of a sudden that truth is shattered. Now they're looking around saying, is there truth? If there is, where is it? How can I trust anybody telling me that something's true anymore? If everything I've ever believed in my life ended up being untrue, then how can I ever do this? So then, then you have to go through the problem, the problem of trying to uh, show them that the Bible is truth and that God is true. You've got to be able to share with them reasons why we know the Bible to be true and let the Holy Spirit of God convince them in their hearts that this is truth. 
And so when it comes to this thing of separation, I've seen a lot of people say, well, I'm going to separate myself from the world, but then they never take the opportunity to say, I'm going to separate myself to God. And we flounder. We, we, we get frustrated because we can't live the way we should. Paul said the flesh is willing, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He goes on to say there were times in his life where he knew there were things he should do that he didn't, and there were things he knew he shouldn't do that he did. Paul struggled with them just as much as you and I do. Why? Because one of the great battles of the Christian life is not just putting off the things of the world, but putting on the things of God, separating ourselves unto them. And so these people, they, they commit this, and they say, we're going to separate ourselves from the people of the lands, and we're going to separate ourselves unto the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. They clave to their brethren and their nobles and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in the law of God, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His judgments and His statutes. We get to the end of verse number 28. We find that there are two things here that are given, that they had knowledge and that they had understanding. I'm going to expound on that phrase a little bit more, Lord willing, next Sunday. I don't want to do it in this hour because we are limited in time, and this is something that I think is very crucial. But I'll just give you a quick taste of next Sunday as we deal with this. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter number 1 and verse number 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. But if we go to Proverbs chapter number 9 and verse number 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. And uh, Psalm 111 and verse number 10 talks about the fact that the fear of the Lord also brings understanding and wisdom to these things. And uh, so we start with knowledge of God. But we've got to get beyond that. We've got to get to an understanding where we take the, the facts and the figures that we know from God's Word and the truth that we know, and we apply it. The psalmist used this word, by taking heed thereto, according to thy word. Not just listening to it, not just hearing it, but taking heed to it, putting it into practice in our lives. That's the understanding. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We'll develop that next week a little bit further. We get into verse number 29. And uh, the Bible uses a unique phrase here as we get down uh, to the middle of it. It says that they committed this, or they entered into this curse and this oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God. <clears throat> and notice this in our King James Bibles. It says, and to, what's the next word here? Observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord. Could we have just, could it just have said that we observe to do? Every word of Scripture is in there for a reason, isn't it? As I was reading that, I thought, well, that's a peculiar way to word that. Why didn't he just put to do? I mean, that's really the gist of it, isn't it? We're trying to get them to do the law of the Lord. What, what does this word observe in there for? Why, why do we do that? So I spent some time, I looked up uh, the word observe in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. And uh, I wanted to find all the old English uses of this word and make sure that we fully understood what it was. And, and there were several uh, things that came uh, out of this as I looked for it. The first one, uh, the first definition, if you take time to look it up in Webster's 1828, the first de definition it gives is it says to conform one's actions or practice to. To conform one's actions or practice to. So certainly we understand that, okay? And that would follow along with the, to, with the doing of the law of God, wouldn't it? And to bring our bodies into subjection. Paul talked about bringing his body into captivity and uh, bringing it into subjection and saying, I'm going to make my body do the things that are contrary to the flesh and that are pleasing 
to God. And so we certainly understand that. I don't think that's very difficult for us to understand. The second definition it gave in there was to inspect or take note of. And I got to thinking on that, and I thought, you know, it's, it, it, the people here, the children of Israel, are trying to uh, conform their actions and their practices to keep the law of God. Well, one of the things that has to happen is they better study it. They've got to inspect it. They've got to know it. You can't keep the law of God if you don't know what it is. I'm amazed at how many people talk about the Ten Commandments and get upset when the government says, we're going to take the Ten Commandments out of the, 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 uh, the courthouse, and uh, they'll even file lawsuits about it. And then the, uh, the lawyer gets up and trying to uh, refute them and says, can you quote them? Why in the world are we suing the government to have them in our, law, in our courthouses if we don't even know what they are? We need to learn to study our Bibles. The Bible tells us we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And if there's, any, if there's anything that I could tell in this day and age that we live, that I can tell is a weakness in most lives. I'm not saying every life. I'm not going to lump everybody into that. But certainly has been a weakness in my life in the past, and I've known other people that have said this is a weakness. And that is this, to give ourselves to study the Word. I'm not talking about reading it for a five-minute devotion or check off your Bible reading schedule. I'm talking about studying it, knowing what it says, rightly dividing it, comparing it with other Scriptures, and making sure that our understanding of that passage is correct and right. I was telling somebody the other day, I've been in services before where preachers get up to preach and they'll read a text, and then they don't let the text get in the way of a good message. They, they, they have a great message, and I'm not even saying it's not a biblical message, but the passage they chose to use it for, it wasn't in, it wasn't in the context of what it was saying there. We've got to make sure that we rightly divide the word of truth. It's interesting to me the Bible uses this word observe to do, observe and observe and do, according to the law of God. And the fact that there was an inspection that needed to take place. The third definition it gave was to celebrate or solemnize. Can I tell you this? I don't know how many times I've seen Christians that have studied the Word of God, they found out what the truth said, and then they were discouraged. Huh. i got to do that. Can I tell you this? When we love God the way we ought to, the commands of God are not grievous to us. There's something we rejoice in. There's great liberty in the bounds of Scripture. I don't know how, how many times I've heard lost people or even folks that claim to be saved that are away from the Lord and backslidden that have said, boy, it's just, it's just so restricted. I just don't like that the Bible tells me I have to do this or I can do this or I can't do that. Can I tell you this? I'm glad the Bible tells me those things. I, I wouldn't know how to please my God if it didn't tell me that. And if that's the, if that's the drive of my life and the, the fact that I want to love Him with all of my heart, I want to know how to please Him. I want to know what it does that makes him glad. I want to know what it does, what it, what I do that makes him sad. I need to know these things, and and so we ought to rejoice in the truth that God's shown us. I'll be real frank with you. There's some truths in Scripture that the old flesh in me they don't like it a whole lot, but I'm glad they're there. I rejoice in it because had it not been for God telling me that, I wouldn't know. We rejoice in it. There's a celebration in God's truth. And then the fourth definition I found is, I got into Webster's 1828, to watch carefully, notice this, with attention to details. I was talking to a, a fellow a number of years ago, an old, old preacher friend of mine, home with the Lord now. 
And uh, he said, Greg, when you read Scripture, he said, squeeze all the juice out of it. Get everything you can. Don't just read the Word of God, but read about the God of the Word. When you look into Scripture, what does it tell you about God? What does it point to you about? Ask the who, what, where, when, how. Look into what it's saying. Read the context. Read the chapters around it. Read the book and the setting. Who's it written to? Why? Because we want to get all the, all the juice out of it we can. We want to get all the details. So we're to watch carefully with attention to detail. The fifth definition was to come to realize or know, especially through consideration of noted facts. To come to realize or know, especially through consideration of noted facts. You know, the Bible tells us quite often that we're to meditate day and night in this book. What does that mean? We're to mull it over all the time. There are, there are things that as I read and study Scripture, I tuck it away and I may not fully understand it. And then I'll read and study some more Scripture, and I'll read it and I'll tuck it away and I may not understand it. And then as I think on these things, they all seem to kind of start coming together, and all of a sudden the light bulb turns on. There it is. Why? Because I've taken the time to consider it. I've taken the time to think about it. All of these things are wrapped up in this word observe. It's amazing that these folks were not just saying we want to do God's Word. We want to know it. We want to study it. We want to understand it from the inside out. We want to rejoice in it. I mean, this is not something these people are taking lightly. This isn't something that there's just a quick commitment as they come to the altar and say, Lord, we want to do Your work. Boy, they want to give themselves to it. Not only do we want to do it, we want to observe it. And then the last definition, I love this one. It said to utter as a remark. <laughs> you know, when you get the Word of God in you, and you begin to understand its truth, and you start getting excited about it, and you start celebrating it, it's not too long before you got to tell somebody about it. Isn't that amazing? I read those definitions in Webster's 1828, and I thought, you know what? I, I don't know that the Webster's 1828 was, uh, was inspired. In fact, I know it wasn't inspired. But I think in that definition... I think God might have helped old Daniel Webster to give us some insight into this idea of observing the law of God. We ought to be excited about it. We ought to study it. We ought to delve into it, learn it. And as we get it, as we understand it, as there's some understanding to it, we've rightly divided it, then we've got to tell somebody about it. And I'll tell you, I think that this is a wonderful, wonderful covenant these folks are entering into. They find out that they have understanding and they have knowledge. And then they said, we want, to, we want to commit to God. We're going to make this covenant with Him. We're going to reiterate it. That I'm going to observe and do the law of God. Oh, that we could learn to observe and do the law of God. A lot of our preaching, a lot of our preaching is on knowing the Word of God and doing the Word of God. Oh, that we could learn so much about letting the Word of God infiltrate into our inner man and help us to be the type of person that God wants us to be. That we would soak this book up and say, I don't want to just know it and I don't want to just preach it. I want it to become part of me. Oh, that we would learn these things. I think it would be a wonderful truth if God could get a hold of a handful of people that would say, I want this book to live in me. Oh, that we would search for that. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. Lord, as we've taken just a few moments this morning to look into it, Lord, how rich it is with 
the knowledge and the wisdom that you have, which far surpasses ours. And Lord, we're thankful that you've allowed your Holy Spirit to guide and instruct us in some things and to bring to light things that oftentimes we are remiss in understanding or knowing. I pray that you would help us as we study your word to always look to get all of it that we can, to understand it, that your Holy Spirit will guide and direct us in it. And so, Father, we ask that you'd bless the time that we've spent here together. May it be a help to folks. And then, Lord, our service to follow, I pray that you would bless there and work in our hearts. May your Holy Spirit have free reign to do as he would see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.